Elizabeth, Ruth, Jim and Phyllis, Mimi. We got it. Okay. Sort of a wing left formation here. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're waiting for Jack and Dick. If I could put this over at least people hear you more, at least over on this side. Okay. So, all right. Let us pray. Bless the Lord who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant to me in such wise, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, you may embrace, never hold fast, the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hello to everyone. Um, we hope you all know that Cheryl, who is not here, her son has a brain tumor that got operated on and substantially removed, but they're still you know, those chemos. I haven't got a I haven't got a report after the surgery, but she's not here for that reason. John's at a and Marion are at some kind of thing for him. He's having his procedure on December seventh. For ease of memory, the feast of Saint Ambrose. Yeah. Japanese attacking on the feast of Saint Ambrose is all about. Yeah, I have my cataract surgery. Okay. Cheryl's son's name is London, right? London. Yes. She has two sons. Yeah. Yes. Okay, Cheryl, we are talking about you. What I'm going to be here. Any report London. on London? Yeah. yeah, they took out the tumor. 
we don't know if it's benign. We won't find out for another eight days. He, his eyes don't really work. Like they work, but they're going two different directions. So he has to relearn how to like walk. And, um, but some of the tumor was left. They couldn't take all of it because it's connected to the brain stem. So just keep us in your prayers. I have to pick up my other one. So this is the first time I'm leaving the hospital, but I've picked this time. It's perfect because I can, I'm going to just listen to this while I drive to go get him. Yeah, in, in, in our prayers. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm going to go mute and turn the video off. But thank you for doing Bible study. Hi, everyone. Thank you for praying. So um, we are jumping in today to a new epistle, the epistle of James. And our logic here is that we're um, we're working through those epistles that are uh, in the tradition called the quote unquote Catholic epistles, which means that they um, that they uh, weren't written by salutation to a particular destination, but are general seen as general epistles of the church. Um, Jude was one of those, uh, so that's kind of how we're going with that. So, um, now, who is James? Who is this James? Any, or, or maybe we start with what are the prominent biblical Jameses? It's a little bit like keeping track of the prominent New Testament Marys. What are the who are the candidates? So James, the son of Joseph. Yeah, he's he's never um, called the 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 son of. I mean, he he is the son of Joseph by one way or another. He's always called the brother of Jesus, yeah. one of the brothers. That's always the distinction. I thought it was interesting to distinguish that. Mary's brother. Say that again. Well, other Joseph. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the, the Just to be clear, Jack is is bringing out the idea that one of the possible Jameses is James, the brother of our Lord, who's among the, the Lord's brethren who do not seem to have believed much in him early on in life, but later came to faith. Um, they're called the Brothers of Jesus. The tradition developed in the church. It wasn't there from the very beginning that um, they weren't actual subsequent children of Mary because uh, the idea that she didn't have any. And if, if that's the case, they have to be children of Joseph by a previous marriage. Um, a lot of um, Protestants and evangelicals have rejected that tradition and posit that, that, that these are all children of Mary just in the normal course of, of uh, business. Um, this is the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary that, that, that holds that uh, not only did he know her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, as Matthew said, but he did not, he knew or not thereafter as well. Um, 
So it's not a doctrine that's as important. It's a tradition. It's a matter of highest opinion. It's not as important as the central doctrines. But it was held pretty um, universally and ubiquitously, so much so that even William Tyndale, um, the famous Protestant Bible translator who was really killed for translating the Bible to English in the uh, 15th and 16th century, um, wrote in his marginal notes on Matthew, you know, he knew her not until that it does not mean he knew her after. So everybody in that era would have accepted that idea. Now, for what it's worth, but we can digress on that forever. So, so there's, is there any other James in the New Testament? Well, so this, this is what we would, there's some, there's a tradition that that's, that James became the head of the church in Jerusalem. Yeah. The, what other Jameses are there? King James. King James. <laughs> Biblical Jameses. Apostolic Jameses. What other James? Come on, don't don't act, don't do this because you're not you're you're you're, you're not thinking. Apostolic. Okay, so who who did Jesus, Jesus call any fishermen? Yes. Who did he call? James. Peter. What were their names? John. Okay, sons of Zebedee. So, like, I don't know any other Jameses. Yes, you do know. If the sons of Zebedee, they couldn't be the sons of Joseph, right? So there's a James, the son of Zebedee. There's also appears to be James, the son of Alphaeus, who's also an apostle. So there's two apostolic Jameses, of which James, the brother of our Lord, is not. Although, um, when... Um, St. Paul recounts the resurrection in 1 Corinthians uh, and who Jesus appeared to. He says he was seen of Cephas, then of James, so he may have appeared to James. And, and that kind of sort of makes him apostolic in the manner of St. Paul because he, he would have been a witness there. So nobody is exactly certain which James this is, but the preponderance of the tradition is that it's James, the brother of our Lord. Probably not James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, because why? Any historical reason from Acts? Sons of Thunder. He was mar martyred very early on in Acts. And so uh, may not have been around to, to write this letter at this time. So um, now, some things about this James. There, there. I, it's interesting to get some background. Um, there's a church historian Josephus who uh, recounts. It's a writing this later on, but but James. Um, there's a martyrdom of James. How he died. Um, so I'm going to read from Eusebius. That there's Eusebius. It's a. It's if you're interested in early church history, it's a doc, a document, a book you need to be familiar with. Is the Ecclesiastical History, uh, written by Eusebius, and he kind of writes a a, a a broad history, which he 
you know, either resurrects or develops or creates certain traditions, but a lot of what the tradition is, you know, I mean, he's a serious historian, so he would have done the best he could with what he had. So um, I'll excerpt this, and so we can get a sense of what he says about James. Um, and we're going to accept the tradition that James probably wrote this because um, of what is said about him. Um, but after Paul, in consequence of his appeal to Caesar, had been sent to Rome by Festus, the Jews, being frustrated in their hope of entrapping him by the snares which they had laid for him, turned against James, the brother of the Lord, to whom the Episcopal seat at Jerusalem had been entrusted by the apostles. The following daring measures were undertaken against him. I'm going to skip some of this fairly large writing. Um, It says of James um, that he had been called the just by all from the time our Savior to, of our Savior to the present day, um, for there were many who bore the name of James. He was holy from his mother's womb, and he drank no wine nor strong drink, nor did he eat flesh. Now, drinking no wine nor strong drink do you remember from the Old Testament what that, there's a word for that in the Old Testament? Yeah. Nazarite. Nazarenes. Uh, yeah. It's, well, Nazarene is, um, of course, what Jesus is. Nazarite is a vow that, that the, old, the Torah specifies one might take. Which famous judge was a Nazarite? Samson was. Samson was a Nazarite. He drank no wine nor strong drink. I'm sure he has a cocktail. Um, you need it after a day there. Um, and no razor came upon his head, nor did he anoint himself with oil. And he and he says he did not use the bath. He was alone permitted to enter into the holy place, where he wore not woolen but linen garments. He was in the habit of entering alone into the temple, and was frequently found upon his knees begging forgiveness for the people. So his knees became hard like those of a camel, in consequence of his constant bending them in worship of God and asking forgiveness for the people. Because of the exceeding great justice, he was called the just and oblius, which signifies in Greek bulwark of the people and justice, in accordance with what the prophets declare concerning him. Now, some of the seven sects which existed among the people, which have been mentioned in the memoirs, asked him, what is the gate of Jesus? And he replied that he was the Savior. On account of these words, some believe that Jesus is the Christ. But the sects mentioned above did not believe either in a resurrection 
or in one coming to give to every man according to his words. But as many as believed did so on account of James. Therefore, when many of the rulers believed, there was commotion among the Jews and scribes and Pharisees who said there was danger that the whole people would be looking for Jesus as the Christ. Coming therefore in a body to James, they said, we entreat thee, restrain the people, for they are gone astray in regard to Jesus, as if he were the Christ. We entreat thee to persuade all that have come to the feast of the Passover concerning Jesus, for we all have confidence in thee. We bear thee witness as to all the people thou art just and dost not respect persons. Do thou therefore persuade the multitude not to be led astray concerning Jesus, for the whole people and all of us also have confidence in thee. Stand therefore upon the pinnacle of the temple, that from the, that high position thou mayest be clearly seen, and that the words may be readily heard by all the people. For all the tribes with the Gentiles also are come together on account of the Passover. The aforementioned scribes and Pharisees therefore placed James on the pinnacle of the temple and cried out to him and said, Thou just one, in whom we all ought to have confidence, for as much as the people are led astray after Jesus, the crucified one, declare to us what is the gate of Jesus. And he answered with a loud voice, Why do you ask me concerning Jesus, the Son of Man? He himself sitteth in heaven at the right hand of the great power, and is about to come upon the clouds of heaven. And when many were fully convinced and glorified by the testimony of James, and said, Hosanna to the son of David, these same scribes and Pharisees said again to one another, We have done badly in supplying such testimony. Let us go up and throw him down, in order that they may be afraid to believe in him. And they cried out, saying, Oh, oh, the just man is in error also. And they fulfilled the scripture written in Isaiah, Let us take away the just man, because he is troublesome to us. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their doings. They went up and threw down the just man and said to each other, Let us stone James the just. And they began to stone him, for he was not killed by the fall. But he turned and knelt down and said, I entreat thee, Lord God, our Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And while they were stoning him, one of the priests, the sons of Rechab, the son of the Rechabites, who are mentioned by Jeremiah the prophet, cried out, saying, Cease what you do, the just one prayeth for you. And one of them, who was the fuller, took a club with which he beat out clothes and struck the just man on the hedge, and thus he suffered martyrdom. They buried These things are recorded in regard to James, who is said to be the author of the first of the so-called Catholic epistles. And this would have been um, probably in the early 60s. Um, but it gives us a sense of, one of the things that, that story gives us a sense of is um, it's interesting because you even see in his um, language he says about Jesus, he sitteth at the right hand and will soon be coming on the clouds. Now, I'm not sure James understood exactly how that judgment would come, but when we read Revelation, 
and the destruction of Jerusalem, that is what we suggested. And what we see is the witness that was of Jesus that was rejected. It was perpetuated in the church and the apostles and epitomized by James continued to be rejected. And so this, this just kind of fills up the guilt. So um, that gives us a sense that tradition of the kind of man we're talking about in James. A very, very devout and holy man. Um, and the epistle of James, if we look at it, we can think of it, um, it's not a treatise on salvation, like, for example, St. Paul's letter to the Romans is. Um, it's in many ways corrective, and um, where he's advocating to a right view of the Christian life. He's very Jewish in the sense of um, not allowing this separation of faith from manner of life. And this would have been one of the things, as St. Paul uh, roaming around Asia Minor was preaching justification by faith and not by, by works. And what he meant by works would have been the works of the scribes and Pharisees, the works of the law, the idea that by zealously keeping the commandments, you would earn a kind of justification. Um, what James is saying, though, is not that faith doesn't justify you and not works, but that faith is inseparable from works. And so you can't fall into the error of saying, I believe, and it doesn't really matter what I do, which not even St. Paul said, but it was often confused by his hearers, and even today those same kinds of tensions exist between the idea of justification by faith and the necessity of works to show one's faith. Uh, Martin Luther didn't like this. The reformer Martin Luther didn't like this epistle. He called it a strawy epistle because he didn't think it straw, like straw, epistle of straw, because he didn't think it set forth clearly enough the doctrine of justification by faith upon which he um, hinged the Protestant Reformation. But that opinion says more about Martin Luther than about the Bishop of James. So with that introduction, um, let's jump in and, and just read ourselves to James. And verse 1 says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now, a few things there. Um, if this is James, the brother of our Lord, we might ask, why doesn't he identify himself as as much? But I think in light of crucifixion, resurrection, the exaltation, James here instead emphasizes his relation as a servant of God, not like he's my brother kind of thing. I think he's 
became aware of, you know, that, that so he doesn't emphasize it here in his reading. Um, and that would have been, I mean, if we if we just meditate on that whole reality, um, which actually is interesting meditation on conversion, if James was raised in the same house as um, Jesus, the brethren of our Lord, and did not believe, as we're told early on, the process by which this brother that you kind of think is weird and, and you know, uh, you come to understand that he's, oh, no, he is the Lord of heaven, so so much so that you would, wouldn't even begin an epistle by saying, brother, you would begin it simply by saying, I'm a servant, is an interesting one. Maybe even to reflect ourselves how our own views of Jesus often migrate from, from you know, disbelief into um, recognition of who he is as he's revealed to us more. The epistle is addressed to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So what do you think he means by this? Or maybe the question is, does he mean only the Jewish people scattered abroad? Diane shook her head if you can't see it, so I think she's right. No, he doesn't mean that. And we want to remember here an image we, we encountered in Revelation, I believe it's chapter 7, where um, he, um, John saw 144,000 of all the tribes and 12,000 of each tribe. Um, and then in Revelation 7, that vision expanded to a multitude of all peoples, nations, and languages, and tongues, uh, standing before the throne of God and the Lamb. And what John was doing for us there was broadening our understanding what the fullness of Israel was about. The fullness of the promise made to the 12 tribes now includes the Gentiles who've been brought into that reality by faith in Jesus Christ. So James, who... Um, presided at the Jerusalem Council where they decided that the Gentiles did not need to be circumcised certainly understood when he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad it's all those who accept Jesus Christ the, the truly Jewish people as his own death suggests that you can't really be a truly Jewish person if you rejected the Messiah that God is sending to save people. So it's something we have to understand in our, um, you know, that, 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 that as Christians, our, we are inheritors of the promises originating in God's promise to Abraham and the 12 tribes, fulfilled in Jesus, but still carrying that thing. So we're all part of the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And now the scattered abroad, the exile is not just from the geographic land of Israel, but it is from the kingdom. And we're waiting for our Lord to come and gather us all in. 
to the king to end our exile. And we've spoken about how the Christian life always exists in this tension between having the spirit and living in the kingdom and yet not having it yet completely fulfilled to always be anticipatory. And, and this is really, that, that tension is really the grounds for both James's martyrdom and her own detachment from this world. Because since we know that nothing can be fulfilled fully here, we, we are called to be very skeptical of and hold the very loose hand any interim appearance that that is so. Because we're living for something beyond it. And therefore, if, if our allegiance to the kingdom should be tested by trial, we want to hold on to the kingdom and let go of the temporal thing that it costs us. And it's something for us to meditate on because our relative the call for us to sacrifice is clearly usually a lot less than what the first Christians had to, had to call to sacrifice. And it, but it certainly is a reminder for us to think about that and, and think about how our lives can be more oriented around that essential fundamental faithfulness. So the 12 tribes, in other words, because we are part of the 12 tribes because we, 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 the promises are fulfilled in Jesus, he's writing to us to readings. Now he starts out with something that is um, unsettling. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work. You may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So, did you get up this morning in your prayers and considering the things you're struggling with, did you praise God for that, for those struggles? Yeah, okay. So that's right. I mean, I, it's, this isn't, this shouldn't be as, as facetiously sounding as, as I need it. Because that's always what we discover when we come prepared in the morning is life is always going to have a range of struggles. What we discover when we come to God in our prayer is Christ is with us. In and if prayer gets reduced merely to the attempt to have Christ take them all away, we're going to live in a kind of fantasy because they'll never all be taken away. They'll simply fluctuate in intensity. And with most lives our lives undulate between times of, of seasons of trial and prayer that lead to some kind of relief and answer resolution that then lead to more um, more trial. But wh why does this why does this not make God just a mean God who's always trying us? Problems. Huh? He doesn't cause problems. Okay, so he just so he so so we'll explain that a little bit. I mean, 
So we, we, so sure, um, Carol mentioned we cause our own problems. Okay. I certainly don't blame somebody for problems that I have. Which is, which is a good framing of this, I think, in the sense that um, the problems any of us have um, are really our own microcosm of the world's problem that is rooted in the disorder of the world called sin. That's the human condition. One of the... Well, the... It's, extreme, it's especially strong in our time, the perpetual lie of the world apart from Christ is that the world's going to fix this thing. And that something it can give you or you can do can take you your trial into a place of relative peace. And so, um, um, and that's always a lie. So a lot of times when you see the way religion in the world works is that it, when it conforms to the world, um, is that it is used as a way to try to help us in the world by providing merely by providing answers and leads to our worldly problems. And in that framework, <clears throat> faith is then evaluated by its effectiveness in helping us with those things. But that is completely contrary to the perspective of the New Testament which says that the primary thing is not how you're doing in the world, but how you are doing in your life in Christ. And as you're living your life in Christ, which begins in baptism and faith, it progresses in the life of prayer. Its end point or telos is the kingdom of God and the coming of our Lord. As we're moving forward in our prayer, we interpret the world, what happens to us in the world, in terms of our faith, rather than interpreting our faith in terms of the world. So when we're growing in our faith and we've a, a challenge, he says, counter all joy, we can say, well, what's God going to do in this? And what he's, it's interesting, the wording here, <clears throat> count it all joy, knowing, so there's a knowledge here. We should know in Christ that as our faith is tested and we, and, we, and we work through it, we're going to develop the virtue. It's called patience here, but the word really means perseverance. Because patience has a passive, I'm just sitting still kind of thing to it. Where perseverance has more of a, we're running a race and we don't stop thing to it. And that's kind of one of the importances of kind of the life of prayer and, and the liturgies of the church is they are things we continue in. We're not just sitting and being patient, we're, we're persevering. Any other thoughts about that? I would talk about testing. 
So, so uh, testing and trials in the New Testament, wherever those words appear, they're the very same form of, of this word. There, there are two translations of the very same word. Whether it's a test, whether it's a trial, that's the essential thing that, that is being referred to in that context. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit, um, and we're going to get to it more um, in a few verses down, but well, where does the first test of faith come in the Bible? In the garden. And you've got this world that's all great, perfect, paradise, and in slithers this serpent. Hey, what's up? Starts a conversation. Why? This is, we're talking about a timeless question here. Because that's the question. If God created a paradise and it's all great, why does he allow this thing to slither into it and uh, test? I'm not going to answer this for you. So. Is that a real question? Or is That's that a real question. Oh. Why does he allow this serpent to slither in and test? Okay, it, to see if our faith is real. Yeah. He's talking about perseverance. Our benefit. Why does um? Why is it important to God that our faith is real? What's that? Without it, we're not with him. Without it, we're not with him. So the the testing of um, he wants a relationship with us. That relationship, at least one principal metaphor, is marriage. And he's committed. Question is, are you? And it protects us from choosing less things, less valuable things. It, it sees if we will choose less valuable things. It sees if we will hold on to Christ even when things aren't going so well. Because we trust, the only way to gauge trust is to hold on to something when it doesn't appear like it's really working. If I trust you, and I don't really understand what you're doing. All right, he's going he's to figure it out somehow. You can't have a relationship with that. So, um, you know, even in a courtship, right? You, you wouldn't just say, yeah, let's get married. Oh, I love you. Well, okay, you're going to go out for a while and see. Okay, well, when, when, it's, when it's not going so well, when we're not on that sort of starry night, uh, um, when I'm at my worst, where are you? So that's an important thing. And it's the one thing I would say about it is that it is um, the, one of the most constant things in the Bible is the reality of testing. 
he tests Adam and Eve. Every single person God calls, he tests. He tests Noah, build an ark, because the floods come. Oh, really? In a desert valley. Floods come. I need a boat. Abraham. Okay, now go we'll take the son that I just get just waited 30 years for. So there's always a test to know are you in? James, the test. Are you in? What if you had to die for it? Well, I give a lot of money, but maybe not all of it. Maybe. Ruth. about this because I've been re- I can't hear you hear me now say what I was I was just wondering about the relationship of uh, suffering and testing and because it seems like often in testing there's suffering and I was trying to uh, grapple with some of the things that Thomas Merton said about suffering, and it seemed to be about we also. I mean, I can't grasp it all, but there, this aspect of it revealing ultimately Christ in us. I mean, how we identifying with with um, Christ in His suffering. So, is there? Do you see a relationship with all that? The testing and the suffering and the Yes, it is absolutely the case because, again, the narrative we're living in, we're living in Christ. And so when the New Testament authors allude to the narratives of Israel to make sense of our life, it's exactly what it is. And what Christ does is bring our sufferings into his narrative story so that they have his narrative ending. In the world alone, apart from Christ, your suffering is the pain of death. But through the gift of the Spirit and bringing, and then our whole story bringing brought into Christ through the Spirit, then your sufferings become the birth pangs of your resurrection and of the new creation. So the, 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 the unification of our story with Christ's story is what provides the redemptive meaning in life. And that's why we ask, what is God doing in this? And it's why we can count it all joy, because the only really eternal thing happening in anywhere in any of our lives is how God is working in the temporal things to do something eternal. As soon as the temporal thing becomes an end in and of itself. It's an idol. This horizon is now. And enjoy it a lot, because it's all, it's all there is in it. And that's the idolatry of the world. We always are to enjoy everything in that sacramental sense of its, of its relationship to the kingdom. Even the good things in life must be received with thanksgiving as gifts, and must be held with a loose hand, and must result in generosity. That's how we stay free from temptation. And that's why you think about temptation here. It's important to understand, because James will get at this. It's not, um, 
I mean, we think about like we might think about it mainly as well. Walking along, we're tempted to, you know, to to sin because we lost or anger or gluttony. He's thinking, I think here, equally as much a temptation of wealth, the temptation to hold on to that, to see that as the end, and then with that holding on tightly to that, we begin to, you know inform fate to, to, to the contours of that. So everything in life that would pull us away from Christ is a temptation. And we, not just the things that were tempt us to sin, but also the things that are good that tempt us to make idols out of those things. Um, and that's, of course, again, the narrative of Israel, right? That they got to the promised land and they built the houses and and planted fields, they had prosperity, and as Deuteronomy said, they began to say, my own hand and the strength of my arm has gotten me this wealth, which was the beginning of the... of the. Um... So, I know this, this, this perspective is radically different from the world we live in. It's why we have to come to the scriptures and continually renew ourselves in it, because we constantly live in the world and are dragged into the world story. I need this and that and that to make me happy. And the fact is, if you're not contented in Christ, and you don't bring your contentment in Christ into all those things, or into the lack of those things, you'll always be just as discontented as you were, because the things themselves will not really do it for you. I have a question. Yes? Do you think that we should be grateful for our testing because it means that it's working in our lives? Because I think sometimes we have a tendency to look They're never tested. Their lives are so easy. What, what do you think? It's, it's interesting meditation. I, I think obviously there's a balance here because I... I don't want to, um, we don't want to portray God with a sort of masochistic sense of let's, he really wants us to hurt. I think it's more like um, if you're an athletic coach, you're coaching a team, and you want them to grow as a team into the place where they can have victory in the game, you're going to have to have some really hard practices. And people are going to be worked out to the end of their endurance. They come back next day and do it again. But eventually we're going to get to a place where when the game shows up, the, the adversary looks smaller because we have a certain strength. And I think this, this Adrian is talking about, should be grateful. It's obviously when it hurts a lot, it's not like we've got help us. But I think if at least part of our prayer can hold on to help me learn what you want me to learn here, trusting that he has a good resolution for it and enduring through it. And I think that's a really important point because I've learned in my own life, I think you start out thinking about prayer that is mainly a way to, you know, to pray for things. And I, I discovered over minute over you know a few decades of ministry that most of the things I prayed for the answers came to, to summarize the kind of uh, by getting my butt kicked for a while. 
because I was more ready. So I learned some lessons and matured and was able to handle something that I just wasn't going to. And, and what the, the testing itself, the getting uh, beat up a little bit at the time looks like the destruction of everything. It looks like what we sometimes talk about is catastrophization. The whole thing is over. But seen from the standpoint of the kingdom, that's really the grounds in which God is doing some of the, that work of the kingdom in creating some new thing in us. So I think, Adriana, yes, I think we should be grateful. And sometimes we look in the world, you know, Job talks about this because part of the logic of Job is that um, Job is innocent and he's suffering. We know that from the, from the prologue. His religious friends come and say, you should repent because we know that God operates on a basis of a retributive justice and people who are bad get punished and people who are good get rewarded. So you're getting punished. You must be bad. Repent. And part of Job's meditation throughout Job is, no, no, the wicked, they're getting away with it. They're prospering. It's the righteous guys getting his butt kicked. And um, sometimes it looks like that. People have charmed lives, but that's its charmed temporal life. And I think the more we know, knowing that the testing of our faith produces patience, the more we see rightly what this is, we see beyond just this thing to the to the larger reality, and then we can live in that larger reality and count that more, and count the joy of that as more than the temporal thing. The fact that we don't do that fully yet is a mark of our immature faith. And so we're growing in it. And um, I, I do think that God likes to give us blessings. I do think that God likes to visit us and, and give us a sense of his presence. He enjoys it when his people are filled and can be grateful. But we have to be prepared for that. There has to be a wilderness that gets us ready for the promised land. But we don't, and that's why we always have, for example, we have the season of Advent coming up. And we should observe it as the season of preparation for Christmas. There should be some negation, some fasting, something we do that um, prepares us for Christ to come so that when we he comes to the end of time and also even when he comes to the Christmas feast, we can receive him in a new way and enjoy having stripped away some of the other stuff, can enjoy the feast in, in a bigger way. The problem with our culture and the feast is if it's always just a feast, it becomes curiously unsatisfying. You just become, so it's a paradox. And the fasting seasons of Lent and Advent are voluntary negations. The testing that comes to us in life is sometimes involuntary negation. It just happens. And, and yet the thing is what we're doing through it and how we're growing through it. So, knowing that the testing produces perseverance, we should really read. But let perseverance or patience have its perfect work, 
which you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, I want to highlight that this word perfect is, again, a form of that, that word telos or teleos or whatever. It, it, it's, it's the same word that um, is used when Christ is described as the end. And it's why when we hear end, the word end in the Bible, the end is near. It's not for us. End in English has a, it's, it's all done. But this word telos, uh, Christ, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, means he is the completion. And so as we grow in this perspective of seeing trials as ways to grow, we become perfect and complete. We don't lack anything because we can we can say with Saint Paul in um, Philippians. I mean, we're never I haven't gotten there completely yet, but he says, "I know in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to have more than I need, and I know how to be in lack. I know how to I can do all things through Christ. We learn to feed in the wilderness that prepares us for peace." Let's get a couple more verses. These might not be whole chapter sessions. <laughs> There's a lot here. So. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally without approach, and it will be given to him. In this context, what would wisdom provide? Why? What would the wisdom be, be want desire for? Huh? Clarity. So we're being tested. What kind of wisdom do we need in testing? Well, I mean, we need to know what's to see what's happening. And wisdom is the ability to understand what God is doing and not get stuck in the tunnel or truncated vision of just in the moment. Wisdom to see, oh, okay. So if we lack the wisdom, if we're being tested and we just don't get how this relates to something larger, uh, can ask God, who gives to all liberally without reproach, which is in, and will be given to him. It's interesting we talk about promises of prayer. Whatever you ask in prayer, believing you'll receive, Jesus says. Um, that things like wisdom or joy or peace are things that we undoubtedly know that God wants us to have. Whereas any particular temporal result may not, you know, hope you want me to have this, but if you don't want me to have this, then... So wisdom is the ability to, to understand what God is doing and why things, why things that are difficult can be good and why things that are good can be, can be difficult and to understand it that way. So we can pray for that and God will give it to us. But, verse 6 says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, 
driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what would praying in doubt look like? He says we'll get wisdom if we ask in faith, but if we pray in doubt, we shouldn't suppose we'll get in. What, what does doubt look What does it mean to be double-minded? But in terms of um, trial, wisdom means the grace to know what's going on in the midst of trial as we hold on to Christ. The double-minded man may be so keen on escaping the trial may really want the worldly thing, that he's, he's asking for wisdom to understand, but really wants to flee from the spot of, of faithfulness. So he, 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 he won't necessarily persevere in the trial to, to get the, the persevering benefit, and if he's going to flee from discomfort because he's double-minded, he's not held not holding on to Christ single-handedly, then... Now, look, we all waver in our prayer in these things. So, um, but prayer itself strengthens us in this. And the scriptures strengthen us in this understanding that these eternal things are the thing. It's why trying to endure temptation without holding on to prayer like this, without holding on to the word of God that makes sense of the thing. Why should I stay in this place of faithfulness? Why shouldn't I just check out and seek the comfort? We take our Lord in the wilderness, right? The testing. Hey, if you're the son of God, why don't you do this? If you're God's child, why don't you just go get a relief here? It's no big deal. And... You know, Jesus is always living in the scriptures. It's also written, you know, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we hold on to the scriptural promise. That's where wisdom comes. So faithfulness is believing that God has our good in mind and holding on to faith. And even if we, you know, stumble, we come back to our prayer, and we renew our effort to hold on. Because the stumbles in which we digress from holding on teach us also. Because we think if we really know Christ, and we're holding on in trouble, and then we, we, we run for some relief, however it might be, and we find ourselves there, that that becomes a curiously empty space. Begin to feel like first parents naked and ashamed and afraid. Because now we have this thing, but we don't have God. So, but that's instructive for us. The experience of being distant from God, our prayer, instructs us that I don't want to be there. And almost all of the ability to be faithful. The ability to be faithful is certainly developed 
by, by bouts of unfaithfulness where we understand that's not what I want to do. We learn as children. I don't want to be over here. This isn't good. Okay, I'll do this. And we could also pray as these things happen, like the, because uh, he says to ask in faith and not in doubt. There's that uh, man in the gospel who comes to Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus kind of criticizes his sort of lack of faith. And he prays, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We're always trusting, but understanding that our, you know, we need to be strengthened in that trust. Okay. Pick up at verse 9 next week. What's that? Two weeks because next week. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's right. So not next week on Thanksgiving. So you have to hold that thought about uh, for two weeks. We'll be back. Uh, and by the time we next get back, we'll be Advent. Think about your Advent disciplines. You should have some. Um, Let's pray. The Lord bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us. Be gracious unto us. Lord, lift up his countenance upon us. Give us peace this day and forevermore. Good to see you all. Thank you. That's right. Yeah, I'm good. I had, I had something. That? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, go ahead, go ahead and take, take that. Okay. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's. See, this, this is, I mean, this has been a good for me, this HP. What kind you get? Yeah, I got a little. Yeah, yeah. I, I had no problem. Yeah, you don't want to be Yes.